You can turn your Bibles to Genesis 48. Genesis 48. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving with family or friends. We were able to have Thanksgiving with my family as well as having Amy's, uh, most of Amy's family come down to our house for Friday or Thursday and Friday. Saturday morning, we were going to do one last thing with Amy's family and uh, Annalise's, we're getting ready to go, Annalise's like, where's my glasses? You know, as a parent, you're like, okay, come on. <laughs> you expect us to know where your glasses are after having, you know, 30 people in the house, uh, everything going on. We, we, we could not find Annalise's glasses. We looked everywhere. Eventually we found them, right? But uh, for, the, for that first hour, there was no finding Annalise's glasses. You're like, there's just, there's just no way of finding with all the, the, the craziness of, of what took place. And, um, and isn't that true for a lot of, sometimes we, we lose things, right? We, we lose things, we don't intend to lose them, but we do, right? They're just like, uh, they, they disappear, whether it's our glasses, like, or there are uh, maybe your keys, right? Or things we lose. And in fact, uh, if we look at life overall, the problem is just to go, fully into that idea of loss is that eventually we lose everything, right? Like, death ultimately means that we lose everything at some, at some point. We're going to lose our health in time. It's, we, we try to keep it, we exercise, we eat right. Well, maybe not this weekend particularly, but overall, right, we eat right. Um, but we, we will lose our health. We, we lose our friends over time. They move away or they pass away or they fall away. Eventually, even our friends are gone. We lose our job, right? Because we retire or we change jobs or we're downsized. Eventually, we lose our job. We lose our homes, right? We move away from them. We move in with relatives. We move into retirement homes. Ultimately, we lose our homes. We lose our possessions. They break. They get lost. They get stolen. We even... Uh, lose our marriages, our spouses pass away, or we get separated from them. Ultimately, we lose our lives. L loss is something that uh, happens to all of us. In, in fact, it, all of those things will happen to all of us. In that sense, death is the great equalizer. And as we get to the end of the story, we focus in on death because it's, it's usually one of those endings to people's stories, at least as we, although we know with biblical endings, there's always a new beginning, but at least here we're focusing in on the ending. And at the end of the story, so to speak, there's a surprising amount of hope that's here. And that's what I want to see as we look here at Genesis 48 through 50, and as we, in a sense, since transition forward into looking for Christ's, re Christ's birth in the season that we're in, there's, there's a sense in which, how do you find hope in the midst of losing everything, Right? How do you find hope in the midst of losing everything? But that's actually what takes place here in Genesis 48 through 50. And it's again, it's a fairly long passage. I'm not going to be able to read all of it, but I want to look at it together. And the big idea that I want to get across is, is rather than being surprised by what we will lose in this life, 
We should find hope in who God is and what he is doing. Rather than being surprised by what we will lose in this life, we should find hope in who God is and what he is doing. So I want to look here at the end of both Jacob's story and Joseph's story. We see actually two deaths in these three chapters, Jacob's death and Joseph's death. And and we're going to see in the midst of those a lot of hope. So let's, let's just read Genesis 48, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Joseph, Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to, to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So here again, Jacob just reiterates this promise that's been given to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob and Jacob and most, all of them multiple times here Luz is that place in Bethel. They renamed it Bethel, right? It's the place where Jacob was fleeing first from his, his, uh, his brother who wanted to kill him. And he, he lay down on a rock and he dreamed of, the, of the, the ladder that went to heaven, right? And then he realized, that, in a sense, that God was with him. And then when he came back from Laban and he came back, he came back to Bethel. And again, a God appeared to him and said these, these words. He's actually repeating these words from when he came back into the land where God is saying, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make of you a, not just, in a sense, a company of peoples, nations will come from you and will give this land to your offspring and after you for an everlasting possession. So here we have the promise of of fruitfulness for Jacob, a nation for Jacob, and also the land for, for his people. And of course, at that time, God changed the name of Jacob to Israel, showing the change in who he was based on the promises of God. Verse 5, so, so this is just a rem, Jacob's reminding um, Joseph of this, and this this promise informs both 48 and 49 and 50. This, these, what happens after this is all based on the promises of God and the, the recognition that these promises are real in my life and for who I am, my legacy, and for the future as well. Verse 5 says, And now to your sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, those are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And so what he does here is he takes the two oldest sons of Joseph, and he makes them his sons. He, in a sense, he adopts them. There's a phrase in here that talks about them sitting on Jacob's knees, and I, I don't think they were literally sitting on his knees. He was, he was old, but the, it's, a, it's a legal phrase for adoption. So when, when you're adopted in, in your sense, you're placed on the father's knees, and he says, these are mine. And so, actually, Jacob adopts Joseph's sons, his grandsons, as his legal heirs, along with the other sons. And by doing that, what he's saying to Joseph is, I'm giving you a double blessing through your grandsons in, into the inheritance that will be given to us by God. And, and so he, he, it's an interesting thing that he does here. Again, he's, what he's acknowledging in a sense, and we're going to see this even in what he, in what he talks about 
in, in four, chapter 49 is he's saying, Joseph, you're going to receive a double blessing. The, remember, that it was kind of divided. Remember with uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, the, the blessing and the inheritance were divided. Jacob, Jacob, in a sense, Esau sold the inheritance to Jacob, right? And then Esau, and then and then Jacob tricked his father into giving the blessing to him as well, right? So you have these two things. And we're going to see that Jake, Judah becomes the leader of the nation. He receives that sense of, of, of that part of it. But Joseph receives the blessing and, in a sense, the double blessing. Or, I mean, from a mathematical perspective, you'd say he, he receives two, two twelfths or two thirteenths rather than just <laughs> one thirteenth. Um, but he receives that two twofold aspect there. And then what happens is, notice verse 8. When, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, whose are these? And he's not saying that he can't, uh, he can't recognize them. He says, he's, just, he's starting this formal process of blessing them. And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons who God has given me here. And he said to them, bring them to me, please, that I may bless him. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so they could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed them with his face to the earth. And, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. So Joseph is intending for the older Manasseh to be at Israel's right hand to receive the, the blessing of the, of the older son, right? To, to receive that, that sense of it. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands. So he, instead of Israel doing what Joseph expects, he crosses his hands like this to give the blessing, right? Um, And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's hand to Manasseh's hand. And, and Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he gives also an additional mountain to, to Joseph's family. Now, here, what we see is interesting here, because the first interesting point here is to understand both the context of Genesis 48 and what takes place. And I'm just going to kind of call this a struggler's legacy. A struggler's legacy. What's going on here? Again, Joseph, uh, Jacob is, is recognizing God's promises to him and wanting to pass them on to his sons. But he reverses the, the inheritance. You, know, you, you, you remember Joseph, Jacob's story, right? Jacob, Jacob has always been this struggler. He's always been this fighter. 
You remember even in the womb, they fought so much that, that Rebecca, had, in a sense, was like, what's going on in my womb? And, and God's like, one is going to be greater than the, than the other. You know? Jacob, the younger, is going to rule over the older one. And, and then, as we said, they, they, Jacob tricked his father into getting the blessing. And Jacob was always struggling with his, his, his in-laws, his parents, and ultimately God himself. It climaxes in this, this scene where Jacob sent his family ahead of him across the river as Esau is coming. He's afraid that Esau is going to come and kill his family. And he's struggling alone on the other side of the river uh, with God, ultimately, or an incarnation of God. And he's struggling with him, and he's saying, bless me, when he realizes who it is. He's saying, bless me. And he won't let go. He won't stop struggling until he's blessed. Jacob's always been this struggler. He's always been this fighter, the one who, who is, is like, I just, I just want to be blessed. I just want to be blessed. I just want to be blessed. And here we, we see that Ultimately, he's acknowledging and appreciating how this works and wanting to pass it on. Because Joseph, for all the greatness he had, he was bl- even though Isaac or Israel was blind physically, he wasn't blind spiritually. He realized Joseph needed to see something about God's kingdom and who God was, God was because Joseph could take the stance of, well, hey, I'm, I might not be the oldest son, but I'm the oldest son of the most loved wife, right? <laughs> right? He was the oldest son of the most loved wife, Rachel. That was his status. He was the favorite son. He was the son that they got the, the coat of many colors. He, he, he was that son. And Israel wants to help Joseph see that, that God's kingdom and ultimately God's plan is not based on our status or any status or things that we can say that make us great. Because he knows, Jacob can see, Isaac can see clearly that he's, he's going to die, that, that, that things are all equal in death. There's another thing that causes great equal equality amongst people, and it's sin, right? Romans 3.23 makes it, puts it clearly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're all in the same boat. None of us are, are better than another one of us. We, we, all, uh, we all sink together, is the point. We have this equalizing factor amongst us that that makes us who we are and it it, it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars in the bank or a thousand dollars in the bank you're still a sinner it doesn't matter if you have uh, a ton of talent and you can go into the world cup and play for your nation in the world cup in soccer or you don't even know how to kick a soccer ball you're still a sinner it doesn't matter if, if you have all this, the knowledge in the world and your brain can figure out so many different things and you can go on and get a PhD and, 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 and do great things in the world like that or you can just, you know, take a job and, and uh, I can barely pass kindergarten. You're still a sinner. And, and we live in a world that doesn't buy this. They would prefer to believe that there's something that makes them better than someone else. You say, well, we, we live in a democracy. How can that be true? Well, there's different reasons to be a, 
to believe in democracy. I ran across this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in democracy because I believe in the fall of man. I think most people are, believe in democracy for the opposite reason. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that that's just not true. Not everyone is so good and wise that they deserve a place at the table. He goes on to say, the real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were fit only to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. You see his point here? He's like, there's, there's a great equalizer, and it's called sin. And we all face it, we all live under it, and God's kingdom is not going to be based on human conventions. It's, he, he doesn't be like, well, okay, let's figure out who's the smartest or who's the fastest or who's the wisest or who's the most capable or who's this or that, and those people will be great in my kingdom. It's clear that we, we come into God's kingdom based on his sovereign choice, that he chooses to make us a part of his kingdom. He brings us in of his good pleasure, his grace. And so it's, as Paul said, it's not the wise, but it's the foolish. It's not the rich, as Jesus said, but the poor. It's not the powerful, but it's the weak. It's not the ones who possess everything, but the ones who are willing to give up everything. And that's why Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he starts those spiritual blessings by saying, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And here, Isaac, I'm, I'm sorry, Jacob or Israel is, is making that choice. He's saying, Look, I'm going to choose to bless Ephraim over Manasseh. Not because there's anything better in Ephraim, but it's because I want to subvert the choices that say the oldest, the, the firstborn. They're always the one that gets the, the blessing. They're always the one who gets control. They're always the one. That's the way we human beings would do it. And he's saying, no, it's based on God's choice, and I'm, I'm letting that be seen in my choice. Without the story of Jacob's legacy and everything that you've, you've, you've get, you get together with this, you might put this story of God together wrongly. You might think to yourself, well, God chooses the, the really wise people, you know, the guys that can get up and, and can put everything together, and the guys that can teach, and the guys that can lead, and the guys that can have lots of money and give. Those are the people that God really wants in his kingdom. But that is simply not true. God chooses the weak. He chooses the poor. That's what he chooses. And he chooses to show that the greatness of the power belongs to him and not to us. And so as we look at, at our a reason for hope here, we have to realize that our reason for hope is based really on this choice 
Like, if, if our reason for, we have a choice in looking for hope and finding hope. We can either find hope in our ability. We can find hope in our power. We can find hope in my ability to, to, to get the next, that degree that I want and find that, that spouse that I want and, 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 and get all the things that I want out of life. Or we can get, find hope out of the, the resources and the power that we have to, to do what we want to do with our lives. I mean, most of the time, right, when we say, I want freedom, what are we saying, really? We're saying, I want the freedom to do what I want, you know. And here, God is giving us a different picture on the kingdom of God, that it's based on his, his choices for us, his love for us, that our hope is not in ourselves, it's in him and what he chooses for us, in, in what he has planned for us, in the, the things that he wants to do in our lives. Your story, in a sense, is based partially on all the things you might be ashamed of. Things that would cause you to hesitate to bring them to light. Things that you think wouldn't be worth noticing, like, well, I'm weak over here, or I, I've messed up over here, or that I can't, I don't really want people to know about this. But those are the exact reasons God chose you, in a sense. To highlight that the power is not from you. The grace is not from you. The righteousness is not from you. The wisdom is not from you. It's from him. And, and we, I don't know about you, but I kind of bristle with that because I'm, I don't know, I'm a firstborn. I'm like, hey, come on. I deserve a little credit here. You know? I had to be the first one to do a lot of stuff that I wish somebody else would have had to done for me. You know? We bristle, right? Like we, we, we wish that, that our achievements or our statuses or our things could 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 lend us the, this extra credit with God, so to speak. I mean, okay, like, give me so much, but let me give me the extra credit, right? You know, like, give me over 100% here, and then I'll be greater than all my siblings. But when you realize that it's, it's not based on those things, it's based on God's mercy, His grace, His choices in our lives. Do you realize how much of a much greater basis for hope that is? Because when he chooses, he's chosen. It's done. And you might say, well, how do I know if he's chosen me? Well, have you heard his call? For those he chooses, he calls. He, he welcomes you. He says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You, you, you can be a part of this. You can be know that you're chosen because... You've been redeemed. He has promised to do that to anyone who calls out to him. And here, even though Joseph is upset, Jacob is saying, hey, I know I struggled, and I know I fought for blessing, but I've come to realize that it's not based on me fighting and me struggling. It's based on God graciously giving to me what he chooses to give me and I'm happy with that. I delight in that. I want that. that. We can see that also in the next chapter, in chapter 49. Notice what happens then. Okay, I gotta skip forward here. There we go. A prophetic blessing, chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. 
assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. And he goes through and he gives. What's interesting here, it's a blessing, but it's also prophetic, okay? And it's, it's interesting in a lot of different ways within the Pentateuch as a whole. So the Genesis is part of the, the book, the, the, what we call the five books of the Bible, which in some ways Moses wrote as one book. It's not, we divide it up into five books, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But really it was one book in Moses' mind. And this Genesis is in some ways the prelude, if you will, to the great conflict that happens in Exodus and then how it all plays out in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But in, in the context of this, this is a really important, you say, well, it's just a poem that he's writing for his sons on his deathbed. Okay, yes, that's true. It is a poem that he wrote for his sons on his deathbed. That's not wrong. But he's doing it intentionally, and Moses puts it in here intentionally to show this great... It's both a worship of what God has done up to this point, and it's a transition to say, look what the nation is going to be like, okay? It's prophetic. And it's not just prophecy like, this is what's going to happen, although that's part of it. It's because it's really more than that, it's, and it's more than just about events that are going to happen. It's about speaking to who they're going to be in this larger nation, He's, he's, he's saying, this is what it's going to be like in this nation that you're coming together and these families that you're starting that are Reubenites and Simeonites and Levites and Judahites and however you say all the other ites, okay? They're still going to be, even though they're in their tribes, they're also going to be in this nation and therefore it cuts across this identity that says, well, I can just determine who I am. Because what Reuben could have, could have said, well, I'm just going to, be, I'm just going to start my own nation, Right? Or I'm going to start my own thing, do my own thing. And we, we often think that freedom, again, is, and blessing is found by being able to determine who I am and who I want to be. And sometimes, although we, we do the opposite, right? We say, well, I'm too afraid or I, I, I messed up too much or obviously everybody's against me, so I'm not going to figure out who I am. I'm just going to give up who I am and just be what everyone else wants me to be. But neither of those are what God is doing here. He's not saying, cut it off, nor is he saying, uh, just go do whatever you want to do. He's saying, I'm going to bless you by creating this nation. And Jacob is, is putting this into place. And it's interesting because you say, well, it's blessing his sons. But if you look at the first three blessings to Reuben, <laughs> to Simeon and Levi, let's just read those for the sake of argument so you can see this. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went, he went up to my couch. He's referring to a time when Reuben went into one of Jacob's wives, or his, his, uh, his wife's concubine, in a sense. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into your, their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You say, uh, Normally, my father doesn't speak blessings like that to me. You know what I mean? Just saying. Like, this is, this, you might call this, instead of a blessing, an anti-blessing, right? Like, like this is not a, a blessing. But 
you have to understand that he's not kicking them out of the family. He's just saying within the context of the, this family that you're still in, there are certain consequences to your behavior. And those are going to re- play out in the future, but you're still part of the family. So it's, it's a blessing, but it's an anti-blessing at the same time. You, you can imagine that Moses, who wrote these words for us, but they were you know, written before, Moses taking these words and re- remembering he's a Levite. Moses is a Levite, right? And he's thinking to myself, ooh, yeah, my anger. I did what Levi did. I, I killed a man. <laughs> right? He killed that Egyptian out of his anger, out of his fear, just like Levi had. And these anti-blessings are, in a sense, warnings. There are limits to the real blessings that come to the family and to God. And we need those kind of warnings in our lives because we need to realize there are limits and lines to how this works. And yet at the same time, you have him moving on to Judah, right? And notice what he says to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, verse 8. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. That's more like a blessing. But this is a royal blessing. This, this points ultimately to Judah's tribe being the tribe that brings the, the, the ruler, the king of Israel to be found. Even though they're not even talking about a king at this point. But Jacob is clearly speaking out of the faith that he had in God's promises. And Moses is putting this as a link between Genesis 1 and Deuteronomy 33, where Moses blesses the tribes. And in the middle here, in a sense of this transition point, he puts Genesis 49 to say, look, there's there's these blessings that come and these anti-blessings, these warnings that come to to us. And notice in the middle of of the poem here, if you go down... To verse 18, after he blesses Dan, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Really, the key is not all the things that are going to happen. It's that he's waiting on God for God to continue to work. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if, as Jed pointed out, in a sense, they're backing into the future, right? What If you can't see the future, well, well you can just see the past. How does that work? You have to believe that God is the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God of future grace. That He's going to come in and keep doing what He's done in the past. So, how does this apply to us today? Well, one of the key things is just that we're very similar, or at least the disciples when Jesus started the church are very similar to these men here, they didn't know everything that was going to happen. They didn't understand what they were being called into in this church that they were being called into. And, and they didn't know what, what it meant to be a part of this nation called the church, and they didn't understand what, what they needed to do and what they needed to avoid. They didn't understand where they were headed and who they really were. 
But as the New Testament prophecies unfold for us, it becomes really clear what God is doing in our lives, where we're headed. Think of, they didn't know when Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't have the words in Ephesians 2, right? Where it says, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Like, the future is about grace. It's about the grace that keeps coming and coming and coming and coming to us. Because it's God's grace in our lives. And he said, he looks, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your undoing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's the warning, right? It's, it's, it's not about what we've done or what we will do, what we can accomplish. It's grace. And so as New Testament believers, we are part of a new nation, not the nation of Israel, but the nation of the church and we're called to this, to be this people. Not focused on our works, but focused on God's grace. Notice how the end of our story, in a sense, not the end, but Revelation 22 ends. It says, verse 17, okay, I'm going to put it up here. Thanks. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who sears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the word of life without price. You want to know again that you're chosen? Come, (laughs) receive, right? But then notice the warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to this thing says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Over the New Testament, what God has done is he's, he's told us who we are. And he told, he's told us where we're headed. And he's warned us about things that we need to stay away from. And, he's, and he said, this is who you are now. Will, will you believe this? Will you follow this? Will you live into this? And this is why we're not looking for extra prophecy in this time. Why? Because by the time we get to Revelation, we know who we are. We know what we've been given. We know where we're headed. And as 2 Timothy says... <laughs> The word of God is given to us to equip and complete it so that every one of us knows what we need to do. We don't have to go anywhere else. And that's why he says here at the end, he puts these words, he doesn't put these words in because revelation needs to be kept clear. It's because the, the revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation, is now complete. It's done. We know who we are. We know where we're headed. We know what's going to happen to us. Do you know who you are? Do you know what you're promised? If you don't, go back here and find out. You don't need to go anywhere else. It's here. 
He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And not just to die, but to rise again, to give us not just the hope of forgiveness, but the hope of eternal life with him forever. So that he could say, right, I'm going away for a little while, but I'm going to come back <laughs> and bring you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is, if you're a believer, this is who you are. It, you're, you're part of this family. You have these blessings to look forward to. And, and one day we're going to be with him forever. And in the meantime, we're like the, we're like the sons gathered around listening to the father speak to us going, I need some blessing. I need some blessing, father. I want to know what the future holds. I want, I want to know who I am. And I want to know where I fit. And Jacob's, he understands that. And for his sons, he's like, I'm, I'm going to give you a picture of it. Just a picture, a glimpse. You don't understand it fully yet. Moses does the same thing. Jesus, you know who gave us revelation, right? It wasn't John. It was Jesus. Jesus came again to John and was like, hey, you need to see this so that my children know who they are. They know where they're headed and they know what they can look forward to in the future, that, that this, this is the way it is because we have this hope of future blessing, of future grace, grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, welcomed in to the family of God forever and ever and ever. And yes, we live in a world where there's problems and wars and rumors of war and fears of war. We live in a war of division and fighting and anger and hatred. We live in a world of poverty and need and hurt. But there is coming a day when God sets everything right. And if you are a part of his people, that is your day as well. That is your part of your story. Because God is creating this peace that only he can provide. In Genesis 50, therefore, it says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, after his father dies, right, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many were required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Then he What's interesting here is he tells, tells, he asks basically through the household of Pharaoh, can I go mourn my father in Israel? I'm going to go and I'm going to return. And uh, it's interesting here because for two reasons. One, because you know, second in command of Egypt leaving the nation <laughs> and then coming back is a big thing, right? But, the, uh, but it's also interesting in, because Moses is writing this with the knowledge that that, that they're going to get, they're getting out of Israel. They're getting out of Egypt after being slaves. And you, you remember that the, the way Moses goes to Pharaoh initially is he's saying, hey, let us go into the wilderness for a couple of days, worship God and come back. And Pharaoh's like, nope, ain't going to happen. <laughs> and in a sense, he's saying, well, we did it before. <laughs> we got historical precedent here <laughs> for doing this. And yet, Pharaoh refused that, and God 
used even that for good because that's the point of that the second part of the chapter it says verse 15 when joseph's brothers saw that their pharaoh was father was dead they said it may be that joseph will hate us and pay us back for all that evil that he had did that we did to him they're like maybe joseph's been hiding it for all these years (laughs) i don't know why they would think that but that's maybe the way they're thinking (laughs) maybe they're still hiding some things So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came down and fell before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Uh, This is an amazing passage. This kind of culminates the whole story of Joseph and the whole story of Jacob. You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, we see here, in a sense, the whole culmination for why we can find hope. Again, it's not in our abilities. It's not in who we are. It's not in what we can accomplish with our lives. It's not even in how we can control the future and how we can get blessings in the future somehow from God. It's because God means good for us. God means good for us, even when people are doing evil to us. You will have evil happen to you. It will happen. People will seek to control you. You will, you will feel like people are speaking evil against you. You will feel stuck at times even with the choices you have made where you view yourself as the enemy. Like, why was I so stupid? What was I thinking? And there's always two stories competing for your attention. Either the story that you're telling yourself or others want to tell you of this is what your life means. I won, you lost, you're done. You're... E- or you have the story of, they meant it to you for evil, but I meant it to you for good. They meant it to you for evil, I meant it to you for good. And the question is, which story are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the story that, that God is speaking to you, that yes, those evil things happened, yes, those were terrible, yes, I, I hated them, yes, you're going to believe that, but God is still doing good in my life. God still has good planned for my life. God still is a God of grace over my life. We see this echoed so many times in Scripture, right? And we just want to look at the fact that God is a, a peace-creating God. I, I can't, I think my battery is, oh, I hit a button can you just mess that? There we go. Oh. I'm going to go through the whole thing again because I messed that. Oh, there we go. So third, third, third point, just to make sure, uh, it's a peace-creating God, a peace-creating God. Uh, we have this God who is peace-creating. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2 say, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, God is a God of peace, and he's working out his peace even when we cannot see it. Even when we say, well, look at the evil that was done to me. Yes, it happened. Yes, it was evil. But God is still in control. God is still going to do good. And of course, the capstone of this is we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here is saying, God chose you. And God didn't choose you in order to do evil to you. God chose you in order to do good to you. This is who you are. This is why you can have hope for the future. This is why you can believe that there are good things coming even when we see evil all around us. Philippians 1, 6 puts it more personally. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is his plan for us. And this is why we can find hope. We can find hope because (laughs) even in all our struggles, he wants to give us grace. He chose us. We can find hope because he is planning good for us. And ultimately, we can find hope because his goodness is governing his plans. And this can also totally be summed up in Jesus, right? As we move into thinking about the the Christmas season, you know, Jesus was the ultimate struggler who won for us a nation and a home and ultimate blessing for his people. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, to whom the obedience of the peoples deserves to come. He is the coming prophetic blessing by which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the one whom God used to make it all good in him. This is, this is the one. We, we, we know more of the story than Jacob did. We know more of the story than Joseph or Judah did. We know, we can, in some ways, we're still doing this backing into the future thing. Where we're looking back and saying, Jesus came. He died, he rose again, he was the one. He was chosen, the anointed one. And he is the one who brings blessing to me. And I'm backing into this future where I don't know the future, but I know the one who holds the future, right? And so will you find hope this season? Not in your accomplishments or your legacy, not in what you currently have or even in what you think you are. Will you find hope in the God of grace? the God of peace, because God blesses those who struggle, because we are a nation that is being formed of grace. I know you have struggles. In that sense, you're no different than Jacob. You have things you're struggling with, like what's going to happen here, and how can I make this good, and what's going to happen over here, and how can I find good in this situation? You are Have you sought God's blessing? Because he chooses to give blessing to the ones who ask. You have hopes for the future. You're wondering what's going to happen in December. I'm hoping I have a great Christmas. I'm hoping I have a great 2023. But will you just go back to God's promises? Realizing that these promises actually determine who you are and what the future holds 
And one of the things we do is we go back to God's word and we, we just learn his promises to us because it allows us to be molded by them and understand how they mold our future. And you, you, you have enemies. I don't know who they are. It might be yourself. You might be angry at yourself. You might be angry at someone else. You might wish that that enemy was not there. But can you echo with Joseph, they meant it to me for evil, but God means it for good. Will you remember God's story for your life? This is, this is who you are. I don't care if you were born in Kenya, Korea, or in Iowa. God has chosen people from every tribe and nation to be part of his nation, to be part of his people. And that means that this story that starts with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is, is and it doesn't end with us, but it's, it's going through us because he's blessing us and he's guiding us and he's helping us. The God of Abraham is our God today. It's the, he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So will you live in that? Will you walk in that? Will you live with this God who is a God who is making peace? The Israeli word for that is shalom. They use it almost as a, in, in, that, in that area of the world, almost as a greeting, peace. You, you say uh, salam, it's peace. It's, it's how you say hello to people, it's to say peace to people. And of course, in that area of the world, there is no peace. There's all these, this history of, you did this to my family, did this to your family, your family did this to my family back for thousands of years. You say, how could it possibly be made peaceful <laughs> there or anywhere else? And the only way that works is when you let go of everything else and you cling to the God of peace. When you hold tightly to him, he is the one who does not change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he tells us, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So, yes, you will lose your life. One day, your health will be gone. Your friends will be gone. Your home will be gone. But there's one thing that you will never lose if you trust in Jesus, and that's him. So will you cling to that? Will you live with that? Will you rejoice in that? And will you live for the one who gives you everything when you trust in him? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for these reminders through Jacob's faith and his hope. 